everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doomer Optimism podcast, uh, rotating, rotating hosts and rotating guests. Uh, I am joined by Tress Crow. Uh, Tress, how are you? How are you doing? Uh, I'm wonderful. I'm doing yeah. great. I'm doing great. This is this is a lovely, lovely time of night to be having a, a podcast discussion. For sure, for sure. Um, and our special guest today is Ethan Holmes. And Ethan, I'm going to read the bio that you sent us. Uh, so Ethan Charles Holmes, better known as the Post from Underground Online, is a journalist with an international newswire and an independent writer who focuses on culture, politics, and philosophy. Ethan is a longtime resident of Montana, having grown up in the state and graduated from the University of Montana in Missoula with degrees in Russian and political science. He focuses on topics including political theory, international relations, localism, complex systems, Dostoevsky, and of course, doom or optimism. All right, well, um, Ethan, why don't, I, I read the bio that you sent me, but why don't you flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, of course. Well, uh, first of all, thank you uh, guys for having me on this podcast. Uh, it was a pleasure listening to the first couple episodes. Pleasure to see it launched. So uh, I'm glad to be participating in uh, one of these great discussions with you guys. I guess the reason why someone like myself, someone with my background in, in news writing and politics, culture, philosophy, was so interested by this idea of doom or optimism when I came across it was because it touches on so many important areas of, of life and the intellectual discourse on there, both in, in academia and on places like Twitter. Because um, doom or optimism, uh, at least in, in my perspective, feel free to add on or, or fight back on this, it touches on, on tech, on art, on culture and uh, philosophy and politics. Um, it, it even cuts into things like agriculture, nutrition, uh, you know, lo local systems. And so the fact that it touches so many areas and has so much to say about such a broad breadth of issues was really attractive to me. And so to be able to talk about these as sort of a, of an intellectual jack of all trades um, is, is really exciting. Yeah, well, I, it definitely is sufficiently vague uh, <laughs> that many people can, can kind of project onto it what they want, right? Um, Indeed. And from, because many, you know, people are blackpilled about several, several different things, <laughs> right? Yeah. And they could be conflicting things, conflicting epistemologies of how they view the world, which is interesting. Um, and I, you know, I, I argue that it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of a version of an older kind of mythology, you know, that is probably best represented in Christianity, um, but others as well, you know, of kind of like, you know, resurrection, you know, birthing out of uh, crucifixion and death, right? Um, so anyway, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you, you found a resonance with that. Um, how do you, like, in what particular way would you say that, that you've found resonance? Like you mentioned kind of different topic areas, but is there, is there one particular, I, maybe we can even, I'll, I'll even mention right now, we don't have to go into it now, but you, you sent us a couple articles. One is the Doomer Bloomer Oscillation. And it seems like a Doomer Optimist is the Bloomer. Like that, because they, they, the Bloomer, according to your article, has kind of gone through this stage of existential despair uh, and has come out, you know, basically focusing on what, you know, their sphere of influence and their sphere of concern and is kind of empowered by that. And so um, just thought I'd throw that in there. Uh, but yeah, anyway, you want to go into a little bit more about like what that, like how that meme maps onto what you've been thinking about for some time. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I love that setup um, with you having mentioned the um, like the Christ metaphor and even the, the seasonal metaphor, because to me, yeah, the bloomer is like the spring, right? Um, where it's it's gone through the winter, the doomer winter, um, yeah, which comes with its hardships, you know, it's it's crises of, of faith and optimism. And then you're coming out of that with a renewed sense of knowledge and appreciation in the spring. But the spring's a call to action, right? You also have to get planted, get to work because it's, mm-hmm. um, if there's one thing that I've, I've really come to believe, it's that history seems to be cyclical or at least very patterned. And so um, I think there will be future generations of doomer optimists too. And we're just kind of the, the contemporary uh, iteration of them. But um, the meme aspect of it is actually kind of what got me interested. The name doomer optimist, um, for those who may be unfamiliar, um, seems to be rooted in the, the doomer meme, which came about a couple of years ago. And I kind of, I did a deep dive into the etymology of doomer and doomer optimism to try and get a, a solid timeline on these ideas. And, and what I found was, was pretty uh, exciting, pretty shocking. Um, doomer, I think you guys wouldn't disagree. It seems to be a play on boomer, right? Um, boomer is kind of the first oomer uh, of the words out there. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys aren't boomers by any means. Uh, I, I mean, I'd, I'd agree with that. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know where I first heard it. You know, I, I do know that it was it was at least 10 years ago where it was starting to kind of bubble up around the kind of concept of a prepper, right? A doomsday mm-hmm. prepper, right? A doomer is a doomsday prepper, you yeah. know, kind of thing. It seemed like a, a portmanteau to me in a way, like doomer or doomsday prepper, doomer, right? Absolutely. And that um, that was something that I didn't quite realize as someone who who, who is quite young, who is in the Zoomer category of these Zoomers. Um, I, I was pretty young when the when the big um, the interest in the media and prepping culture, at least kind of hit its heyday there with the National Geographic shows and the like. Um, and so reading about this, this culture around the Zoomers, the, the picnic culture um, is what it was called by Wikipedia. Um, in the in the early to mid uh, 2000s, did indeed coin that to that term doomer before the meme came about, and that shocked me as someone who who was certain that doomer originated as a meme term. Uh, and I wanted to le- read this line because I think uh, we see the the early hints of doomer optimism even with this earliest use of doomer uh, from from the Wikipedia alone. Take it as a source as you will. Not all of the picnics doomers subscribe to a fatalist outlook. Uh, one of them, when writing recommendations on how to survive the societal collapse, suggested that his fellow doomers, quote, adopt a positive attitude, because as he put it, hard times don't last, but hard people do. Mm-hmm. And when I read that, that seemed to me to, to at least be hinting at a lot of the things that doomer optimists in this current circle have been talking about. Do you guys, would you guys agree that that seems to be hinting early on at this idea of doomers not as negative, but honestly resilient? Yeah, I would say so. I think that's a pretty, that's pretty good foreshadowing. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, for me, you know, this, this kind of meme kind of grabbed my attention uh, because I, I was kind of getting fed up with the naive optimism that I was seeing, especially in kind of technology sectors. Um, and it felt like it was unearned. And, and perhaps that's my religious sensibility but it was unearned in kind of an existential sense of, you know, you can't, you know, you can't have things 
for free. There is a cost to things. And, you know, these, these ideas that we're, we're just going to continue this flywheel of progress and overcome all of these, these inconvenient challenges, you know, without some kind of flesh taken, you know, it just, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, and so this notion that, you know, in order to be truly optimistic, you have to really, you have to go down into hell for a while. And that could be personal tragedy, that could be your personal, you know, it could be, you know, it could be existential angst in your late teens and early 20s, um, you know, or it could be reckoning with, you know, existential risk um, that, you know, um, there's many, you know, many kinds of existential risk that you can agonize over. Um, and it's coming out the other side more sober, but, but also, you know, and also, you know, in a spiritual sense, coming to terms with mortality in general and, you know, coming to terms with death and, you know, realizing that, you know, in a way, or, you know, our short life, lifespan, we're already dead, but here, but things are still arising and it's, it's beautiful and it's wondrous, right? Um, and so it's just, to me, it seemed much more meaningful and um, uh, profound um, to have an optimism that, that was rooted out of that. And so, yeah, you know, hard, hard times make, you know, don't last, but hard, hard men do, hard women. Um, yeah, but I, I would want to unpack the hardness, right? What does that mean? Um, it's not, it's not like, you know, having trauma that's just been scabbed over without being processed, right? I, you know, that, that could help you to be a good prepper, but I think that um, in the fuller sense of the concept for me, it's, it's not just about being a hardened kind of emotionally stunted prepper, you know, it's, it's the full sense of the term. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think fleshing out what that hardness looks like, what um, long-term resilience or, or the adaptations that we want to make should look like is, is the sort of conversations that are coming out of things like the Doomer Optimist movement, um, where people aren't just saying, um, you know, the end is nigh, so I got to look out for, for my and my own, um, and just prep up materially. It, it is about looking at um, overcoming the challenges of this kind of, this this eve of the modern age and this this dawn of whatever weird thing is is starting to emerge in the world you know what what changes we need to start thinking about and making now um, and that gets to the crux of, of something you guys were hinting at earlier with um with my work with the doomer bloomer oscillation as i like to call it um, yeah, yeah. and this what going back to the seasonal metaphor this transition that comes from from hard times dark times you know uh grappling with with uncomfortable truths to doing something positive, beautiful, uh, you know, productive and creative with that, with that energy. Um, but really quick, I wanted to, to spend a little more time on, on what really Doomer Optimism is to, to both myself and you guys. For me, it seems, um, I, I wrote down a couple of things here on the list that it seemed to me to be relatively core tenets of Doomer Optimism of, of most strains and varieties, as we noted, there's many there, but it seems to be acceptably anti-utopian and that I don't think the the optimism and the sorts of of systems that most of the doomer optimists out there seem to be striving for would be called utopian I think part of the the doomer realism is recognizing we can do better we can even do much better but that perfection seems to be um, a fool's errand uh, mm -hmm. of, of uh, in many ways 
Um, also an emphasis on, on personal and local action. Um, that is that making the changes most immediate to you are often gonna be the most productive in terms of resiliency, happiness, um, you know, minimal negative impact. And then also experimentation seemed to be a big um, aspect and, and core tenet of this Doomer Optimist movement. Um, I think that the diversity and viewpoints we see in it are, are reflective of the experimentation out there. And the, the core need for experimentation to be almost held as a, as a good like normative value in and of itself, because how else are we gonna figure out these weird problems, uh, these novel problems of our day and age if we don't um, experiment in a variety of ways? And I think that's why we're accepting this movement too, is we're willing to say, in terms of that local and personal action, um, be willing to go out there and, and be the first to try something, the first to give something a shot, because it might turn out to, um, to be something that can help all the Doomer optimists out there. Would you, what would you guys say that those seem to be uh, three at least broad tenets that seem to be common across the, the movement with people you've talked to? Uh, I would agree with that. Um, I, I think that, you know, I, I kind of love the idea of bringing on guests and having them try and describe tumor optimism, right? It's because tough, it's, it's almost tough. like it's it's a Rorschach test in a way. Like, I mean, there's certain like, there's certain attributes, right? Which almost are, are almost like wrapped up in the term itself, right? You have to be both a doomer and optimistic in some capacity. Now, how doom, how doom and gloom you are and how optimistic you are while you know, wildly vary, right? Um, I, I do love, I love the kind of anti-utopianism in that. Uh, I'd say almost take it a click further and say we're sort of anti-opianism in general, like we're sort of anti-dystopia too. Uh, although sure. I think there's a lot of, there's, there's definitely a, um, a fear of dystopia, right? Uh, I'd argue we're living in the dystopia currently. Like, you know, I mean, this is the dystopia. My mom has always been very fat, uh, like fond of saying hell, earth is hell, right? Like we are in hell and everything is all upside from here. But um, I, I, I really like that anti-utopianism because that's the thing that like the two ends of it, like I feel like on one end you get like techno-utopianism or sort of like those classic like solar punk images, which just like make my skin crawl. Cause I'm like, that looks like um, an El Corbusier like, drawing of what he was going to do to Paris in the 1920s. It's a freaking nightmare. We know it's a nightmare because it's Cabrini Green, right? We built it here and then we destroyed it because it, it was absolutely pathological. But then the other end of it is what we've been calling like cottage core, right? Which is this utopian, all of the, it's homesteading with all of the rough edges sanded off, right? And it's pure aesthetics. Um, and I think like we definitely, there's definitely, I think like, on doomer optimists do seem to be like running away from either end of that sort of like spectrum. Um, but where we fall on it though, it's, it's like wildly different. I mean, I, I think like, I'm not a front one thing. I'm not a homesteader, right? I actually am, am very consciously throwing my lot in with urban centers, right? That's the work I do. That's my belief that, that like, you know, the reason why I believe that, you know, a quick gloss of it is just that like, it has been, our urban centers have been essentially the, uh, the resting ground or like the, the magnet for all of our cultural, social, financial, human resources over centuries now. And to abandon them seems like, to me, just seems kind of um, short-sighted, 
right? That like, it, it's difficult. It's very hard work to reform the urban centers, but I actually think it can be done. It's a long shot, but if it can be done, it's going to be very worthwhile versus all these people flooding out to the rural periphery and like causing all sorts of mess out in the, you know, it's, it, I, I just feel like we should probably be trying to make the urban centers workable if possible, because that will uh, help the transition, I feel like, versus everyone fleeing out of the cities, which already, I mean, all of our, uh, and this is my last point, uh, kind of tangential to that, is that like a lot of our Northeastern uh, colleagues, you know, who are, who are homesteaders, that's a major complaint of theirs, right? Is that so many people left New York City and Philadelphia and all of these Northeast, you know, cities and have flooded into upstate New York and New England um, and it's causing a lot of problems. Like it's it's gentrifying these areas in a very uncomfortable way. Um, and so I think like, you know, making the cities more livable is is an important thing. But that's that's where I land, right? And I'm I'm sure Jason would would have a, a, a different viewpoint on the urban rural dichotomy. And I know uh, several of the homesteaders we've had on the podcast already would would disagree with me on that, you know? Um, and yet we're we're aligned, right? We're still aligned. We still ex accept that we're on the same spectrum, right? We're at least all seeing the world somewhat through the same lens. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that that once again that difference between the the super rural focused um, uh, doomer optimists out there and those who are more um, willing to to keep the city urban model shows that we're willing to experiment um, and and kind of see what comes out of of the actions that we take now and. Uh, there's, I actually think this was uh, on a post of Jason's from a while, a while back now, um, where I made a comment about a lot of people out there wanting 20 acres and a 20 gigabyte internet connection, right? Where if they could kind of have the best of both worlds, um, I, a lot of people would find uh, a meaningful and content life there. And that's what we are kind of seeing um, with people fleeing urban areas to more rural ones. Um, I'm from Montana, for example, we see a lot of people from more coastal states, more urban areas coming and buying property up here, living here either full time or at least seasonally. And it has a bunch of second, third order impacts. Of course, there's identity state dynamics at play. Um, you know, tribalism gets into play there for better or for worse. And so I, I see that on a regular basis as well. Uh, but I'm not going to ever blame someone who wants to leave a city if they if they feel they would have a better life out in the country. But uh, on the same note, I'm also not going to say that cities are going to, to disappear anytime soon. Clearly, they're, they're hubs of humanity. With, with civilization comes cities and dense living. And like you said, it's going to be a, a lot of work to, to renovate these cities, to reinvigorate them. And we can have this conversation if we want. I think a lot of it um, is architecturally based. I think American cities in particular are are terrible architecturally in terms of fostering social connection, social capital, um, you know, real, real genuine human relationships. Um, and, and we can change that for sure. It's not out of the realm of possibility. It's just a matter of will and having people like us uh, talk to people with more, more power and more money to help do those things uh, maybe in the future. But for now, that's where the emphasis on, on individual and local action is, right? Is we can start maybe building our own homesteads with a fast internet connection or our you know, urban flat with a rooftop um, garden or a greenhouse nearby. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just think that, that that whole conversation there once again points to the Doomer Optimists willing, willingness to experiment and be open to the experimentation of others. Mm -hmm. um, but 
I think that's also a good transition here to the doomer bloomer oscillation, um, because the doomer might say, I'll have no choice but to live in a, a homestead with all the rough edges. And the bloomer might say, um, you know, I, I don't have to, to lift a finger, the naive bloomer, I should say, might say, I don't have to lift a finger and things will eventually turn out for the best. <laughs> um, and I think that the, the doomer, the do, those who go through the doomer bloomer oscillation, those who we might call doomer optimists, um, I think realize that a better future is possible, but you do have to lift a finger and you have to be the one to lift uh, your own finger because no one's going to do it for you. Uh, and this gets to the generational thing as well, right? I, I wrote the Doomer Bloomer Oscillation thinking that maybe it was a, a specifically generational feeling. At the time, I thought, you know, it, it seems to be a lot of young people I've talked to who, who are feeling this way. I didn't have a ton of interaction um, with, with older groups, conversations and older circles um, to, to realize at that point that this is a, a much broader issue and it's not generation specific. Um, and so that's where I think there, there's value to ask you guys as someone who's had, um, you know, so many more, not many, but several more years on this earth than myself <laughs> to, to implement this doomer, uh, doomer optimist way of thinking, what steps, what personal action and experiments have you guys taken, or would you recommend young people take based on what you've learned in order to, um, to have a lifestyle conducive to zoomer, uh, doomer optimism, Freudian slip there. Hmm. Um, I don't know if I would hold up my life as an example of anything because I, I've taken a lot of wrong turns. Well, maybe that's that's the advice is um, you going back to to you know experimentation. Um, I think it, it would probably be helpful to learn some practical skills. Um, you know, just just to get right down to it. You know, uh, it's something that I didn't really focus on. Uh, you know, I was, I was basically in academia, um, you know, all through my 20s and, you know, most of my 30s. Um, and I think I, I really missed out on, um, you know, I did some like small, you know, uh, temporary, you know, construction, you know, var various kind of odd jobs, but, but to, you know, spend a summer, spend a summer on a permacultural farm or, you know, spend, spend, you know, three months in a, in a, another country, you know, particularly, you know, a much poorer country, uh, that, that I think is definitely helpful. Uh, and that was, that was helpful for me. You know, I did a lot of traveling, um, in my, in my twenties and early thirties. Um, you know, I, I think, I think you have to experiment with your, with yourself and, and uh, you know, because it's really, you know, I, it's, this is a cliche, but young people, go through a certain period where they think they know who they are and they think they know what they want. Um, but without kind of a diversity of experiences, um, it's hard to say uh, if you know what you want because you, you haven't, you know, you haven't found expression necessarily in all, in all aspects of yourself. Uh, so, so that's one thing. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything, Tress? Well, I, I'm, I, I'm really applaud you, Ethan. You've managed to somehow turn this into your interviewing us. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm the oldest one here. I, I think I'm what they consider what they're calling a geriatric millennial now. Uh, I think I'm like literally the cutoff, right? Like I'm the first year you could be a millennial or the last year you could be a, a Gen Xer. Um, what was very fascinating is growing up, I always really identified with Gen X. Like I really thought like, you know, I was raised on Nirvana and Green Day and I was like, oh yeah, I'm a Gen Xer, right? 
Um, but the older I get, I think that my economic situation, like the way I've been kind of caught in the wash of the financial crisis and like the way that all of that has, that dynamic has played out in my life is actually much more millennial than it is Gen X. Um, and I identify much more with the millennials now, um, but I'm as old as you can be. I'm 40, so I'm as old as you can be um, to be a, considered a millennial. Um, but I, th I think, you know, it's funny if you were asking me these kind of like, you know, this kind of a question, I come down to like more like, old man, like life lesson type of stuff, which I think would have been just as applicable a hundred years ago as, as it is today, which is like, you know, find your tribe and be useful to them, right? Like that's the most fundamental thing. And that's that's actually why I've la lashed on to Doomer Optimism so much is because I was, I, I've been a Doomer since I read Geography of Nowhere by James Howard Kunstler in 2001, right? He named the feeling I felt going around Detroit, going around these car suburbs, like he named it. He said, these are pathological dysfunctional environments that create a pathological dysfunctional society, right? We are our built environment and vice versa. Um, and I realized like, man, wow, America is really fucked up. And then we went into the, the you know, the, the Iraq war in Afghanistan and all of that was just such a mess. And then they said, you know, uh, the, the theory was peak oil was 2006, right? Two years later, gigantic financial co collapse, right? Like, and everything, you know, it just felt like it's slapping band-aids on it. And so this whole time I've been getting like more and like the pill just got blacker and blacker for me. Um, but I, I think Doomer Optimism has came at a really perfect moment for me because I realized that like my nihilism was not doing anyone any good, let alone me. Right, it wasn't doing any good, and and that's why I thought your definition of the bloomer was so beautiful. Is that it really described that feeling that kind of led me to the doomer optimism kind of milieu, um, because I felt like yeah, I mean it, yeah, clearly the world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? But I have no idea what that means, and unless I'm going to off myself, I might as well be productive and and useful to the people around me. You know, I also have kids. I don't know how this affects you, Jason, but um, I can tell you kids are there. It's like taking all your chips and putting them on the table, right? You can't walk away from the table because you got all your chips on there. You at least got to see how the hand plays out, right? And um, I have found, you know, my kids are my biggest driver uh, for the type of work that I do and the type of seeking that I've done. Um, so, you know, I think I'm, uh, there's a lot of debate about whether you should or shouldn't have kids. I'm very much on the side that if, if you want them, absolutely you should have them because it is, it is the, the closest equivalent I've had to a religious experience. I was one person going into that birthing room and I was one person coming out of it. Completely different. It changed everything about my life and the way I view the world. Um, and so it kind of kicked my doomerism into a high gear. And that optimism has come in and I realized that it was community. That, that was what I, this tangent was to get to the community piece is that you have to find a community and you have to be, you have to be willing to be useful to that community. So as, to reiterate what you said, Jason, a skill, a practical skill, um, you know, my skill is storytelling, right? I, I don't have many practical skills, but storytelling is actually a pretty practical skill, especially um, when you're trying to convince people or talk to people about, 
um, ideas, right? It's actually a pretty practical skill. Uh, I've been trying gardening and I have gotten better. I actually, I managed to raise, uh, get 30 sweet peppers off my pepper plant this year. I'm very proud of it. Um, so uh, I'm starting to grow and, and, um, and, and that's, that's one way I'm heading into there. But I, I would absolutely reiterate what you said, Jason, about practical skills, finding your community, finding a way you can be useful in any way. Um, and I, I don't think, you don't have to make big grand gestures, right? I mean, when you're talking about the scale of the problems, a grand gesture is no different than a, a small gesture, really. Like in, in we're the scales we're talking about, right? It's like, uh, you know, donating a thousand dollars versus a dollar in a trillion dollar economy. What freaking difference does it make, right? Just donate, donate what you can. And in fact, that gets back to, you know, the, the whole, the biblical story of, you know, the, the widow who gave her last, you know, pence or last pennies to the, to the, the synagogue, right. Um, and to the temple um, and, you know, Jesus saying that she, you know, she has a place in heaven where the richest man does not, you know, is that because she gave everything, she gave what she could. Um, and I believe that's what we should do with our communities. Yeah, for, for sure. And and uh, I'm so glad that you guys were were willing to give me those sorts of answers. Um, I, I obviously didn't intend for it to turn into an interview of you, but uh, I'm, I'm a very curious person. Um, I do come from the news, so maybe it's, uh, it's just a tendency to want to hear what you guys have to say. But I think it's also valuable um, to hear honest answers like that, authentic answers like that from, from folks like yourself. Because I know there's a lot of uh, young people, um, you know, my age and younger, who, who want to hear those sorts of answers. It's why there's clearly a, a huge demand online for people to share their kind of, just their, their general life wisdom, no matter how benign it may seem to that person. I think a lot of people do, do benefit from, from hearing the good and bad from others. And uh, there's a couple things that you both touched on there that really make me wish um, that that the folks from Rizoma were here, especially when it comes to learning practical skills. And as you said, getting out there um, and having you know maybe a, an experience working um, in an agricultural setting, because they were one of the first exposures I had um, on Twitter to this this sort of thinking, and it was inspiring to see what they were doing there, um, really putting their 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 money and their time and their labor where their mouth was. Um, and one thing that I've had a conversation with them about in a, in a Twitter space was, like you were saying, the, the impact of having a kid. And as someone who, who right now is in their, their early 20s with peers or in, in the same age range, the number who have zero interest in having children is, is astounding. It's probably unprecedented, um, at least in human history, as, as far as I can tell, in terms of the sheer number who just have no interest in, in this sort of thing. And as a doomer, I understand it, right? I understand the black pill that makes you not want to bring another conscious human life into the world. But as, as a bloomer, I, I see that the, the absolute unlimited creative potential in, in a human life. And I've seen the kind of joy and, and meaning and motivation it can bring to people. And so I think that that is um, important advice that if you, if you find yourself, you know, uh, wanting kids, but feeling dissuaded by, by the black pill, by the doomerism, um, of whatever problem is irking you and keeping you down, that that perhaps there there are second order silver linings, that there are impacts for the better, that maybe can take you from that state of of doomer antinatalism to to maybe a sort of bloomer at least willingness to consider um, 
the positive impact of, of, of bringing another life into the world. Because it is, it is a, a tough decision. I think it always has been for people who, who know the, the hardness of life, the difficulties, and knowing that you're bringing in someone to experience it, right? It is kind of, um, it is kind of jarring. I'm, I'm not a parent, but you just, in the abstract, it's jarring to me. So I can't imagine, you know, people like yourselves who have actually gone through that, that transformational experience as you described it. Um, and I think that, that once again goes to anti-utopianism, you have to realize you might be bringing someone into a tough world, but that you and they will be able to do something about it to make it bearable, beautiful, to find a community. And uh, I've said this many times in the past, people don't care for, for liberty and freedom all that much if they don't have community to share it with first, right? You can give someone uh, all the ability, the, the freedom to do as they wish, when they want, um, and very often it'll be meaningless to them without people to, to, to share that liberty and freedom with alongside, to, to do things with, to have genuine social human bonds with. And I'm not, I'm not, I, don't, I try not to be explicitly political a lot of the time online, although it's hard to avoid it. But one of the things um, that, that I think doom or optimism has to say, at least on the political front, um, is, is to, to think long-term about your communities in the most local of senses, right? Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people feel dissuaded from politics because they, they, they feel as though they won't have an impact on a national or a, let alone a global level. And I think they're entirely right, and that might be a, a doomer black pill, but the, the bloomer part is that it's actually remarkably easy to get involved on the local level, to build a connection with the people living within the, the closest square mile or two to you. Um, I think most problems out there can be solved by just talking to your neighbor once in a while, right? I think if we just took the time to sit down and um, you know, have a hot beverage with the neighbor, um, you know, have, a, have a cold drink at the bar with the people who live around us, far more often, we'd, we'd be better off politically in terms of mental health, um, in terms of our economy, right? I think a lot of times we're so focused on the freedom of atomization that we, we forget that collective kind of invigorating spirit of being part of something bigger, mm -hmm. um, especially here in the US. And, and Jason, the last thing I wanted to touch on, as you said, getting out to a poorer country in the world is one of the best things someone can do. Uh, one of my heroes in the world, uh, Mr. Art Bell of Coast to Coast AM, made a very similar argument um, years ago about how, you know, the U.S. government would, would benefit from, from paying kids to go to a third world country for a year in their late teens, early 20s, and, and learn the wisdom of that experience. I myself uh, went to Siberia, uh, of all places, um, which is considerably poorer and considerably colder. And uh, although I was only there for a brief amount of time, um, I definitely learned a lot more in my time there in terms of like informational input density than I did just sticking around my uh, my communities here in Montana. So I would also echo that um, that sentiment of getting out in the world and seeing people who who maybe ha have learned to cope with much tougher circumstances and produced um, incredibly beautiful things. Yeah, and, and you know this is not this is kind of a vague generality. It's not universally true, but also tend to have stronger social bonds because they have to, right? There's, there's real felt, you know, functional patterns of interdependency when, you know, you don't grow up in an environment, you know, an atomized environment, uh, you know, with conspicuous consumption and, and 
you know, these, these kinds of dreams that we've been fed. Um, so I think that's, that's helpful as well. Um, Ethan, I want to I wanna bring in Dostoevsky um, and perhaps um, the underground man. Um, and this is, you know, as you describe in the article, somebody who kind of takes some pleasure in, in their nihilism, um, in their broken heart. Uh, but, and also if you, if you can, you know, tie that to this kind of metamodern oscillation that you talked about in the other article. Yes, uh, two, two big things in front of us there with this discussion. So I guess I'll just dive right into it. Um, Dostoevsky was a, was a writer I came across early on in my undergraduate degree and just fell in love with um, in, in the months and years following that initial reading of his work, Notes from Underground, which is where I, that's the namesake of my online account posts from underground. Um, and, and the reason I tie it to Doomer optimism is because in many ways, I think Dostoevsky was an original Doomer and an original Doomer optimist. The character of the underground man who is the, I'm not gonna say antagonist or anti-hero, just the, the lead of Notes from Underground um, seems to be the first Doomer. He is uh, almost unbearably angsty um, in his writing. He is someone who, who clearly has genuine and legitimate complaints about the world and about life that you certainly empathize with, but he's just intentionally made to be annoying about how, how right and how whiny he is um, about the state of affairs. And for the historical context, this is being written in, in the, the relatively er early stages of modernity in the, the early mid 1800s here. And so the underground man in many ways is the earliest iteration of the Doomer. Uh, and uh, in the article you're referencing, I link him to modern movie characters such as the, the lead in, in, in uh, Taxi Driver. Um, you see the, the lead in Joker is also very much influ influenced by Dostoevsky and his underground man. But as much as the underground man and Dostoevsky in that early stage of his literary career was, was a Doomer, um, was kind of this black-billed guy dealing with the um, the issue of nihilism and this early kind of death of God concept. He was a, a relative contemporary of people like Nietzsche and an early starter of existentialism. Uh, but later on in his works, in his career, you, you started seeing the optimist leak into his doomer optimism. Um, he, he was a devout Orthodox Christian and he brought many of those themes into his writing. Um, but even outside of a strictly religious context, you saw an optimism in the power of active love being professed throughout his novels, that, that this, this, this most social and human of connections of, of energies out there, this, as hokey as it may sound, love energy out there in the world is actually a far more important and tangible power than people who may be very um, uh, scientifically minded may like to admit um, and I think with Doomer Optimism, we have that same energy, that genuine social human bonds, that focusing on things that bring us together into communities, that, that focusing on those things that are within our immediate personal control and, and sphere of, of influence are most important because that's where love energy is produced. And one of my favorite scholars, uh, Petiram Sorokin, uh, an early father of sociology, was, was known for this idea of, of love energy as a, an actual productive force. We're in the same way that we're measuring uh, things like GDP and all these other demographic stats. We should be thinking about 
love energy about um, social capital people might um, link it to nowadays in like modern academic terms, mm -hmm. that this is something we need to be far more focused on because a lot of um, the economic and cultural and political woes that we complain about really seem as though they would be best remedied or at least most easily remedied by building communities that are that are high in the production of love energy, that are high in social capital and these bonding and bridging factors between people. And I think we have to um, look at it in all these broad areas that we mentioned at the beginning. Um, we have to look at it in terms of architecture, in terms of value and culture and art. We have to look at it in terms of our political and our economic, our trade systems. All of these things play into the far more important and the underlying social human connections at play in all these. And I think if the doomer optimist is one thing, uh, he's a social being like every man. Um, and I think the doomer optimist is acutely aware that as much as society may black pill him, uh, sociality is, is really the savior in this equation. Hmm. Hmm. I got a follow up question here. Um, so, you know, you've been talking about like localism and building community. Uh, your topics also include political theory and international relations. So, opposite so ends. How, how do these? What's that? <laughs> how, how do how do these graft on? Like, how how does how does what we've been talking about fit into this kind of larger context of what you've been thinking about political theory and international? It, it, it's the oscillation, right? I mean, you basically you're, you're yeah. telling us you've told us straight up that you're oscillating between poles. Uh, I have a hard time making that. up my mind. Yeah, I, I really, I, I like looking at things on the nitty gritty micro scale and the very broad 30,000 foot macro scale. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard to, I actually struggle to, to reach that middle ground sometimes between the two. Um, but um, so would you say that these two yeah. things are, are compartmentalized? Yeah, they're, yeah this is, forward? this is one of my favorite discussions between them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I think they, they fit one into the other because I think one of the biggest ideas we should be promoting in international relations is these ideas of localism and local control and, and local economic and, and supply chain systems. Um, a lot of the major problems that we see nowadays on the world stage stem from when, when international supply chains break down. Um, whether that be because some random ship blocks a uh, canal or because of ransomware and all these other like cyber attack issues, right? Um, we see the fragility there in, in very, very large scale international trade and supply systems. Um, and so then you, you don't really see that many people out there suggesting more localized supply chains as a pretty easy, obvious answer, you know, but we didn't have these problems before. And granted, um, I'm the first to, to to concede that in terms of just getting people material goods and, and food and medicine, um, that global supply chain and trade system has done, done miraculous things. But I think to ignore the fact that it has resiliency issues linked to its, its degradation of local systems is something that needs to at least be addressed um, or considered in the highest, you know, the, 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 the halls of Congress and the, the, the chambers at the UN and whatever. And in terms of, of relating to other countries as well, you know, people often analogize states to, to individuals, right? This kind of biological analogy, the body politic, the Leviathan, however you wanna frame it. And so just like we talked about the importance of, of sociality and, and human connections on that micro local scale, I think it, it really matters on the macro international relations scale between these Leviathans as well, if we could maybe taking a, a non-interventionist realist approach to international relations where we say, 
maybe we should be more concerned about growing our garden properly right than what my neighbor's planting in theirs. Um, that's as sound of, of a logic um, in my community as it is uh, on, on the world stage, right? Mm -hmm. uh, everyone wants to get involved on that global level um, and, and not get involved on the local level. And I think a lot of those problems that we're talking about on that global level we're hyper-focused on could be solved by approaching the global issues with a, with a local perspective. Um, I, I hate to say I, I would like to see a broad series of, of city-states and like county-sized regional powers in the world, but if the world were nothing but entities and communities governing themselves of that size, um, I, would be, I would be perfectly content because there'd be a lot of experimentation too, right, on that linking global politics, localism, and doomer optimism, I think experimentations at that core, as well as anti-utopianism, to, to embrace such wide-scale experimentation among the, the local systems of the world, you have to embrace the fact and recognize that some of them are going to fail, some of them are probably going to be um, just awful setups, and we'll learn and, and we'll, we'll move on and learn from that experimentation, so that even if we don't reach utopia, we can at least... Um, busy ourselves um, trying to reach it um, with our with our families and, and communities. Uh, yeah. what, what one thing I find really interesting about the concept of utopia itself is that utopia is essentially like a steady state, right? The idea is that you you achieve something and then you stay there forever, right? And I, I think that there's this always a sense that like we're we're going to grow into that steady state instead of maybe accepting that we uh well a that that steady state is not possible change is one of the most fundamental aspects of, of human life right but that like in a way like the the fun functional definition of utopia was basically like the middle ages right like which we consider the dark ages but like things just didn't change a lot for long for several generations and it also de completely depends on what part of the world you're talking about there were parts of the world that were massively changing during that period right um but i i find it i find it very interesting so here's 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 one of my I'll, here's one of my um my concerns with localism right is just simply that um you know right now the system does creates massive amounts of, of trauma and destruction, right? But it's fairly good at hiding it in the wings away from the main global players, if you will. Like they just sort of hide it in places and pretend it didn't happen. Like I, I think we, we love to like ignore the literal trail of bodies that, that came behind modernity, right? Like modernity required like 10,000 dead Chinese to build the rail, the Intercontinental Railroad. It required millions of slaves. It required, you know, it just required all of this devastation, right, in order to happen. But we just swept it under the rug. We just pretend those weren't, those are externalities to the building of the modern world. And I think one of the biggest pushbacks to localism or, or kind of collapsing down to a more local thing is that um, you can get situations like with Texas, right, where Texas has a regional electricity system that utterly failed, and then you have this catastrophic failure in a local area. You know, um, Iowa last year got hit, or maybe the year before, got hit with that Derrico, right, like that random mid-continental uh, hurricane, right? Well, if 
Iowa's entire agricultural system or system was there, the state would have starved, right? It would it would have been a massively horrible famine situation for them, right? Um, the system saved them, right? The global, the scale of the system saved them. And I wonder, like, I think that one of the things, and I think I'm kind of teeing you up, Jason, because I think cos cosmopolitan localism sort of, or region bioregionalism is sort of, to me, that feels like the answer, is the ability to still share information and resources across bioregions, mm -hmm. but that you're largely self-sufficient within some sort of boundary. Um, I wonder what you guys think about that. I, I just kind of think, for me, that's the number one pushback I have against localism is instead of just having like large sacrifice zones, you just have like areas that just suffer because of natural processes and no one can help them because there's no, there's no sharing. There's no ability to help these, these areas. Also, the smaller the, the, the smaller the area, the more able it, it's to be captured in a way uh, by an autocrat, you know? Like they can just, you know, the, the right strong arm with the right group of people with guns can sort of take over a whole area. Um, and that seems to be a natural devolving point from large scale global empires. They, right. it seems like the natural dev devolution is into strongman aristoc or, or uh, autocracies. So I'm just kind of, I'm just throwing that back out at you, not in a um, antagonistic way. I, I, I'm very sympathetic to that, you're the localist viewpoint. I'm just sort of bringing that up to see what you guys have to say about it. I've made, I've made uh, pretty much the exact same criticisms as yourself, and they're ones that I haven't quite been able to account for. And right now, I'm just kind of at, at the, the point of saying, we know something is, is incredibly wrong with the system. We know we have to, to make some level of change. And it's, it's good that we're at least thinking of these, of these second and third order impacts to, to uh, not reverting, but I guess uh, just converting to a more a local system uh, of, of control and trade. Um, but you're absolutely right. And, and having read a lot of what Jason's wrote about cosmopolitan localism, um, I would also tend to agree that um, we're going to need some level of, of, of regional trade, um, even some level of global trade. As I said, I'm, I'm certainly not going to discount the, the, the miracles that the modern market has done, at least in terms of of getting people necessities consistently that they may have not have had access to otherwise, especially if they're hit with some sort of a big natural disaster. So, so some some range of, of wide trade and connection, I think, is uh, pretty much at, at a point of of no return. We're we're pretty much not going to be able to to totally lock ourselves out, um, remove all roadways and in ways to a place, and, and call ourselves like a you know a little a little walled off paradise slice of earth, um, but like you said, having at least all of the absolute essentials, most of the other everyday um, amenities and wants covered in a local supply chain, or at least a regional supply chain is, is ideal in terms of, of resiliency um, and, and not letting bad actors um, take advantage of these, of these giant national and global level markets. Um, so there's a balance, right? It's, it's this oscillation between wanting to just live with a group of 20 people and then, you know, wanting to still have reap the benefits of cities and, and the productivity of 2 million people in two square miles. Um, and, and the last thing, which will also set Jason up to maybe talk about um, oscillations here and, and um, maybe we can get to some metamodernism talk is this idea of progress and utopia in modernity, right? 
um, with modernity came this really heavy idea of linear progress, right? That, that progress kind of just goes up on a line and like it's not going to get much worse from what we've, what we've developed. And in my view, in my assessment of history, um, we, we kind of have these little flutters. You need uh, air, times of decline against which to rebound for further progress. So it's more little times of decline, but with a general positive trend upwards. And I think that's a very doom or optimist way to look at, at history and progress as well, because it's saying we might need times of decline where the things we've built break down in order to realize where we need to build and, and further propel ourselves towards a better future, right? It's, it's very much linked to that, that popular concept of anti-fragility that some things grow stronger under, under stress and, and failure. Um, and I think that that's also um, under this broad, broad umbrella of doomer optimism, uh, of the oscillation of progress and the uh, inevitability of, of suffering as actually a key creative part of of human history. Hmm. Well, you, I think you, I don't know if you set me up is what, you know, as much as pre preempted me, I think you said a lot of the things that I would, that I would say. And I'm, so, I'm sorry to steal your life. No, 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 it's fine, it's fine. Um, uh, well, I mean, I think, I think that's, a, that's a good critique, Tress. Um, and, you know, for me, localism is, is more of a, it's more of a balancing, right? So we've gone so far in kind of the globalized extractive economy direction that, you know, for me, when I'm, when I'm kind of pungently uh, advocating for localism, you know, it's, it's with the knowledge that I'm not expecting the whole world to suddenly become localists, right? Um, I, it, it's more of like, you know, at the margins, you know, can we get people to to localize some of their dependencies, right? Can we get them to get involved with uh, community organizations, uh, you know, local agriculture at the margins because we've gone so far off in the other direction, right? But that's not to say that there's not, again, some kind of, well, one, you know, I like the term minimum viable uh, scale because it acknowledges, I mean, that, that what that means in practice can be can be debated, right? Because, you know, in some senses, the minimum viable scale I think is planetary. Uh, of course, trade of some items, right? Uh, you know, some raw material resources. If we're wanting to use electronics and you know certain certain machinery and materials, um, but is what, but also, you know, in terms of mutual aid, um, you know, having the capacity to, um, you know, having the cosmopolitan element of localism where, you know, and there's, there's a tension there, right? In one part of our lives, we're, we're building a local community, but I, I don't think that creating these walled off paradises or becoming isolated. To me, like the isolationist trend, trend of localism, um, you know, it, like if, 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 if the whole world were to move in that direction, I, I don't think, the outcome would be good either. I think it would be bad in, in, in a whole new set of ways, right? And so, you know, the cosmopolitan elements of, you know, it's good for people to travel, you know, of course, you know, flying on airplanes are problematic now because of emissions and stuff, but it's good for people to travel. It's good for people to experience other cultures. Um, uh, it's, it's good for there to be exchange of thoughts, exchange of some materials, uh, exchange of mutual aid when appropriate. Um, you know, I think that can enrich 
you know, if it's if it's if it's done in a non kind of colonial way where one culture is imposing its values on another, but it's it's done in in a context of mutual exchange, then I think it can it's extremely positive, right? And so, um, you know, in terms of like what is the kind of the meta stability, like the kind of larger scale meta stability that localism can thrive in, you know, I think that's an open question, and I don't think you know, the models of the past, like but the model that we're kind of seeing now is, you know, kind of, you know, kind of a, a technocratic, you know, um, uh, kind of, you could say technocratic neoliberal capitalism kind of progressive, but still, um, you know, mediated through algorithms and personal algorithms, things of that nature. I don't, I don't think that's the answer what we have now. And I don't, I don't necessarily think something like monarchy that we saw in the past is the answer either, right? But you know, what is it? And I don't think anybody really knows. I think a lot of people are kind of venturing in that territory and thinking about it. But if I were to put out a guess, it would be, you know, some kind of emergent consensus that can, you know, arise at larger scales um, through the affordances of digital technology that we have today, and particularly, you know, uh, you know, advances in the internet, you know, Web three. I think is you know the internet going moving in a positive direction you know it's more more peer to peer you know it's not defined by necessarily by algorithms but by human values that are kind of you know imprinted on those algorithms um, and you know and you know we're going to have to have nested scales of management of things like you know ecological flows um, you know our atmospheric commons is global um, the impacts uh, and, for example, uh, things like the refugee crisis that is certainly coming uh, in the hundreds of millions, um, that's a global scale problem um, because, you know, it's, it's coming from the pollution of our, of our global atmospheric commons, right? Uh, you know, bioregional scale, uh, watershed scale, like these are all nested scales that there needs to be some kind of coherence at each scale in a way that's that's not you know that's not oppressing the the smaller scales, but at the same time, you know, is providing some coherence for one you know my you know my village and the next village over you know you know the ways that we interact with each other you know some elements of that um, you know have to make sense in a larger state bioregional coherence right in terms of managing a watershed you know managing topsoil managing um, you know. Uh, various various species, you know, their their niche range or whatever, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, I guess that's that's my that's what I would add to to your to your preemption. <laughs> uh, absolutely, and to to touch um, on that that tension between like you know cosmopolitan localism, doomer optimism, uh, doomer bloomer, right? I think that this kind of like stark contrast in a lot of these ideas. And, and terms that we're working with here is, is exactly the point, right? It's that there's, there's a middle ground to be found, but you kind of have to understand both ends of that extreme in order to, to find your footing and to choose what sort, of, what sort of action you're willing to take. And to link this to metamodernism, they have the great concept of both neither, right? Um, we, we're, we're both and neither, modernity and post-modernity, right? We, we take aspects of both, um, you know, we look 
at modernity through the postmodern lens and postmodernity with with the we take the insights of postmodernity into this post postmodern age. Um, and I think that the both neitherness of doomer optimism is pretty strong in that. A doomer optimist isn't really a doomer. Um, there's a clear distinction there. If you just called them a traditional optimist, most of them would, would seem to disagree. And so there is a very specific, both neither in between, like uh, state of metaxy here in the, the doomer optimist movement. Um, and I think that's part of our historical place as well. I think we're, we're in a, 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 an era of transition and change and upheaval. And it seems that that's when we get these boomers, right? That was another observation is um, you saw um, these, these boomer phrases, like if boomer is truly the first one and we take it in the literal baby boomer sense, well, that's the great post-World War II train, uh, change and transformation. One of the biggest the world has ever seen and we get the boomer, right? And we get the the Duma right there, its first um, usage is there with, with, the, with the Peakniks um, there at, at Peak Oil. And then we get the Zoomer here immediately with the post 9-11 um, internet era, right? And so all these Umers, Doomer optimists included, I think are also characterized by their placement historically in times of, of change and transformation. And that's why it's hard to pinpoint where we are on one side or the other and all these things is because it's really we're we're both neithers as much as we're we're doomer optimists both neithers um and i think that that's a good place to be it's uncomfortable in the doomer bloomer oscillation i noted it's it's uncomfortable sometimes to have to try and reconcile your your doomer black pill takes with your bloomer white pill ones your your state is someone who is really optimistic about their future but really um ni uh, nihilistic about that of humanity as a whole. Uh, so I think I would just, for people who may be listening to this and confused about how much of this seems contradictory, I'd say to kind of lean into it um, because that's that's one of the things I think clicks with a lot of people with the doomer optimist phrase is they say, yeah, I'm both. And I didn't realize I could call myself both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not growing things the way you are, Jason, but like one of the things that is very, uh, that has been very transformational for me in trying to grow things is it requires an acceptance of just messiness, right? It, it requires an acceptance of like, you know, nature is messy. You know, like the way things naturally proceed, life is messy. Kids are messy, right? The way your adult life, the way you try and make it work among all of these competing um uh, you know, pressures, it, 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 it's messy. In fact, you know, it's sort of like the best case scenario is you're sort of like holding all of these things and they're perfectly like, like laid against each other. So they're actually in balance, but it's a, it's a mess, right? At any moment, the whole thing could just come, come apart. And I think that like, that is actually life, right? In all generations, every human generation that has been life but mod modernity has really like convinced us that we somehow escaped that. And I think one of the things that the, the, the kind of like decade, like every decade we have a new like generational crisis. Like my entire adult life has been 9-11, financial crisis. Like, uh, you know, now we've got COVID. It's just been like one 
you know, unprecedented crisis after another, one black swan after another, right? Which now is just like, oh, this is the way it is. But then when you start to think about it, it's like, okay, wait, before this, we had Oklahoma City bombing and the first Iraq war. And before that, we had the satanic panic. And, you know, it's like in, in the crack epidemic. And before that, we had Watergate. And before that, we had Vietnam. It's like you start going back and you're like, oh, wait a second. This is just, this is actually just the state of things. This is human life, right? Um, and the thing when you're in a moment of these kind of acute crises, it becomes that the world tells you that life is fragile and chaotic and can end at any moment. But that's actually always been the case. It's just now the external world is like reminding us that at any moment I could go get smacked by a bus, right? At any moment, my I, I'm on borrowed time. You're on borrowed time. We're all on borrowed time. We have this moment on earth and it's chaotic and we do the best we can with the time we're given. Um, and I think... I, I, I may be going off on a tangent here, which may be a little bit late in the game to be going off on a tangent. But I think you, you touched on something earlier that I, I think like, uh, especially American modern living is very um, death phobic. Like we're really freaked out about death. And I think part of it is that like, because as we abandon religion, right? We abandon a lot of the, the um, uh, like rituals around accepting these kind of key things. We all are born, most all of us get married, most all of us have children and most and all of us die, right? Like these are these kind of key things and religion really helps kind of solidify how you're supposed to celebrate those things, right? And modernity has not given us any kind of re re replacement for that. And yeah. so death is scary. We're all freaked out of it. Every human ever has probably been freaked out about it. But modernity has not given us a response for that. They've given us uh, Botox and uh, cryogenic extension, life extension. Like they've given us these lies that we somehow can escape death. Um, and I think like the acceptance of it, like the acceptance of the fundamental necessity of it, right? Is, a, is one out in a way, that's one doomer optimism out, is that if you're not as afraid of dying and you're not afraid uh, if you're not as afraid of it, basically, if you accept it as part of living, then a lot of these problems are not actually problems that have to be solved, right? Um, and I think about like, uh, what, a very profound moment for me was I, it, during COVID last year, I took a lot of hikes, like every day, like an hour and a half hike. Um, and it dawned on me one day, as I looked around, that I am, this is a graveyard. Like I am surrounded by death in all directions. I am walking on dead bodies, right? Like everything is death. It's fallen leaves, it's dying uh, animals, it's dying trees. And yet it's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. What I call, what I was going to for solace was just the, ex the, the whole life cycle happening in front of me. And I, and I think that like, one of the fundamental things we're trying to achieve with Doomer Optimism or trying to achieve in these conversations is an understanding of how we're, what part of this cycle are we in? How are we, how are we moving on? Because empires die, people die, neighborhoods die, cities die, like everything dies. And are we, if we're dying, what does that mean? Because we know from nature that doesn't mean the end. Uh, you know, we know it, we know it doesn't mean the end. Um, and 
I think that we're, you know, that's that's where the doomer optimism comes from me. As I as I know this isn't the end, and I think that, and I also know that spring comes after the winter, right? And in fact, winter and spring, winter necessitates spring, right? Like these things, they they all work in tandem. Uh, and growing things to kind of get back to my original point is the growing things has really kind of helped me give a having like a tangible like experience with that messiness and life and death and like that like you just grab a weed and you just tear it up and throw it back on because that's needed for new plants to grow and all the good things that come from life. And, um, and it gets to that contradiction once again, you know, um, yeah. from death stems life, right? There's kind of a phoenix nature to, to most things in this world. And we are often all too keen to take ourselves out of that view when, when death in many ways seems to be one of the most profound links to eternity for all people, not, not to the end. You know, there's a great, there's a great book out there. Um, I can't remember the author, but it's called uh, Worm at the Core, if I recall correctly. And it's about um, modern society's uh, aversion towards talking about and thinking about death in, in an honest way and the negative impact that can have. And inversely, the, the positive impact that thinking about death in a hop in, in a happy kind of optimistic way um, can really have. I think that if we do embrace our role as as being towards death, we do end up having a healthier worldview, a healthy outlook instead of actions that we take. Um, and that's that's something that once again, my my background, uh, one of my degrees is, is in Russian, and so I read a lot of Russian literature in college. and And a classic bit is uh, the death of Ivan Ilyich, right? And one of the the major points of that book is is that this this dying man, uh, Ivan Ilyich, he he's upset that people, his family in particular, won't just recognize, won't just admit that he's dying, right? They go out of their way to, to skirt around the issue, to, to push it under the rug, and to act as though it's just any other ailment. When he knows he's dying, and he just wants to be recognized as such, as a dying man, and the only one that'll do it is this kind of um, naive, slow peasant guy um, who, who gets it, right? And he forms this bond with him at the end. And I think that there's as you would expect with a great writer like Tolstoy, so much modern truth packed in there, even to this day, about how I think kind of the Jumer Optimist spirit is to be recognized as someone facing um, the potential for catastrophe and major crisis in this life, but um, who would greatly benefit um, if you just admitted it, because at least then maybe you can you can have a, a productive solution um, or, or admit which I don't think is the case that, that maybe there isn't one, but nevertheless, you have a dialogue that I think we're all just needing to have too many people want to say, we're not in a crisis. Things really aren't that bad. And there's, there's truth in that things aren't all doom and gloom. And we shouldn't be thinking like totally black pilled accelerationists. It's always going to fall apart type people. But I think a lot of people find it to be a, uh, almost confusingly a breath of fresh air to say, yeah, things are whack, you know, uh, crap's bonkers out there in the world. But like, admitting that's the first step, it sounds cliche, but I think that that's at the core of this Doomer Optimist movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. This might be, um, I don't know, too much of a tangent, you know, perhaps close to wrapping up, but I, I'm curious, so are you Russian? I, I am not by uh, ethnicity, no, at least not in, in like the strictest sense. Um, I picked it up by, by happenstance, actually. I 
you have to take a language at the University of Montana to, to get a degree. Everyone does like Spanish and German and French. I didn't want to do any of those. They'd be packed. Like Arabic and Chinese sound way too hard, but uh, Russian seemed like a good middle ground. Um, I, I had Russian neighbors uh, growing up here in Montana. I had like a really good Russian speaking uh, exchange friend uh, from the east of Ukraine in high school. And so I had several reasons to sign up for the class. And I just fell in love with it. Um, I fell in love with learning a foreign language, with the culture, history, literature. Um, it's just, I think it's a pretty Doomer optimist country, right? Um, you see um, in Doomer wave music, which is linked to this whole cultural music uh, movement, Doomer wave music is oftentimes stylized with Soviet apartment blocks in the background and the Soviet kind of bleak cinder block aesthetic. Um, and oftentimes does, you know, slowed reverb versions of old, like uh, late Soviet era and, and post Soviet fall uh, music. And so I think that my experience with Russian authors like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and my experience um, in the culture there and my time in Siberia definitely uh, impacted my thinking and, and influenced me in this Doomer optimist direction. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a great concept in the Russian language, one of the, those untranslatable things called Tuska. And Tuska at its core is like this vague longing and sense of existential angst and sort of uncomfortableness that you can never quite put your finger on, right? Uh, and the Russians call that Tuska. And I think that a lot of doomers have that sense of Tuska and just want someone to admit it and to, to share it with. Because I think Jason, I, I want to note this earlier, you really pounded in that people feel like doomer optimists. They hear the word and they feel that it, it describes them accurately and it, it accurately describes whatever their blend of, of doomer optimism may be before they hear the term. Um, so just wanted to point that out as well, that it's not, there's not a list of things, all the things we talked about here, if you don't check all the boxes on it, doesn't mean you're not a doomer optimist because most people who latch onto this phrase latch onto it purely because of the, the intuitive feeling of of thinking that it, it describes accurately enough what, what you believe. Well, it sounds like doomer optimism might be your gateway drug to Orthodox Christianity. It, it very well may be, right? There's, uh, there's a lot of links there. We talked about uh, Dostoevsky and the Russian culture. And, yeah. and I think that there is a big link there. Um, there's, there's a lot of ideas of the inevitability of suffering, but the holiness of it in the Orthodox faith, right? Uh, faith. Um, and well, I guess in a way that it is fate to suffer, but that there's, there's a holiness and divine nature, uh, in that suffering and that, um, that, that active love, um, as, as a lot of those Orthodox elders will preach is, is often the solution to, to our small and large scale social woes. Yeah, that's about all I have that I've thoroughly exhausted my <laughs> my months and months of thinking about doomer optimism yeah, in a formal yeah. sense. So yeah. uh, there's no one better to have done it with for sure. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I mean, this has been really uh, I, I mean, I just love all these conversations because they just like they just go in crazy places like they just go wherever they're going to go. Uh, and um, it's just such a joy to, to be a part of this. Thank you so much for for joining us today um, in our kind of classic, uh, um, you know, bit here. Um, give us one last word. What is the kind of the one last thing you really want to leave people with? 
if you've listened to this whole thing, you're probably already a Joomer optimist. But if you're not, I greatly uh, implore you to consider what those words can mean to you, what you find doomy in life and what you're optimistic about. Try and link the two, figure out why you feel those ways. Um, and if you're not already a Joomer optimist, um, I think there's a very, very, very good chance uh, you are one or you'll be one one day. And so like, um, like the fine folks at that, um, like the fine folks at the Libertarian Party said when they decided to run Gary Johnson, you, most people are libertarians and they just don't know it yet. I'm not sure about that statement, but I am confident that most people are doomer optimists and just don't know it yet. I think after this conversation, I would have to say that most people...